You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the third lecture in the Beyond the Book of Kells series, the last one before Christmas and before January of the new year. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Cleaver Whelan, who's uh, an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow in the School of History here at Trinity, working on a project called Birth of a Tradition, the Origins of English Language Writing in Ireland. More broadly, Creever is interested in book production and historiography of the medieval and early modern period in both Britain and Ireland. She received her PhD from Trinity, working with Professor Sean Duffy, which was also funded by the Irish Research Council, and it focused on vernacular historical writing in Ireland in the late medieval period, when she was also named Irish Research Council's Daniel O'Connell Scholar in Irish History. She has an MA from UCC and a BA also from UCC. Some of you will know her as Honorary Secretary of the Friends of Medieval Dublin, and she's published widely on manuscripts, texts, and historiography. If you enjoy this lecture and don't know what to get a friend for Christmas, an IOU would be Gerald of Wales' New Perspectives on a Medieval Writer and Critic, which he's contributing coming out from the University of Wales Press next year. That focuses on the translation she's talking about tonight, but not this particular manuscript. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to contribute uh, to the series, and I'd thank Mark for inviting me to speak. And the manuscript I'm going to talk about today uh, is on screen, a work fundamental to our understanding of medieval English Ireland, that is the part of Ireland controlled by the English crown after their conquest of the 12th century. This is, of course, the invasion of the 1160s, led by mercenary subjects of King Henry II of England at the behest of the King of Leinster, Dermot Mahmara, in an attempt to regain the lost Kingdom of Leinster. So these are people like Strongbow, Richard Fitzgilbert, uh, um, who ends up uh, marrying Dermot's daughter in the Fenties who join the chief families. And the image you see on the right is from our uh, manuscript, uh, 15th century. Um, when English Ireland looked something like the map on the left, so the red area is showing the part of Ireland obedient to the English king, so shrunk from its heyday a little bit. The manuscript contains a work which remains influential right until today as the key contemporary source for the history of the English conquest in the 12th century. So the work contained in this manuscript, Trinity Manuscript 592, is a 15th century English language translation of the history uh, Expugnatio Hibernica, the conquest of Ireland, written by the Anglo-Wench cleric, Gerald Wales. So this is the castle of Manorbeer in Pembrokeshire, in South Wales, where Gerald was born. So Gerald of Wales, Gerald of Barry, Gerald of Cambrensis, uh, circa 1146 to 1223. He's responsible for two works on medieval Ireland, as well as lots of other material. And combined, his two works in Ireland are arguably the most controversial works written about medieval Ireland. He's an apologist for the 12th century English invasion, and he's keen to promote his family interests in Ireland. Many of his family members are involved in the military endeavour in Ireland, and he visits Ireland himself on a number of occasions, in 1183 with his brother uh, Philip de Barry, and 1185 uh, accompanying Prince John. And writing the aid of crusades to the east, he tries to justify the invasion of Ireland as a religious crusade to the west. So there's a lot going on with this work. His first work on Ireland is Topographia Hibernica, uh, history and Topography of Ireland, exploring the wonders and marvels of the place and its people. And he never really stops working on this text. He revises it five times over his lifetime. And he wrote the Expo Hibernica, The Conquest of Ireland, 
1188. This is a more straightforward history of the invasion and settlement of Ireland by vassals of King Henry II. I say it's straightforward, but its initial subtitle uh, later changed is the Vaticanus Historia, the prophetic history. So it is um, relating how the arrival of the English is a fated invasion. And the reason I'm mentioning both of these works is that they're connected. They're part of the same agenda and frequently joined in one manuscript. Trinity 592 does not contain a full topographia, but cross references to the topographia are fleshed out, and passages from that work are incorporated in the English language version of the Expignatio that the Trinity manuscript contains, an unusual occurrence. So the two works are connected and understood as being connected in the medieval period and in our manuscript. The original language of these works was Latin, the appropriate language of the transmission for serious scholars, and Gerald is a serious scholar, but he saw the value of the vernacular. And we can see this in his rededication of the Expugnatio after the death of King Henry II. Uh, Gerald originally dedicated his work to uh, Henry, uh, his work in Ireland, but with the accession of John to the English throne in 1189, he rededicated them and took the opportunity to suggest that a future translation of his work might be undertaken. And he said, considering also uh, that the annals of events heard through an interpreter are not so well understood and do not fix themselves in the mind so firmly as when they are published in the vernacular tongue, it would be well, if such be your pleasure, that some man of learning, who is also skilled in the French language, be employed to translate this work of mine, which has cost me much labour, into French. And then, as it would be better understood, I might reach the fruits of my toil, which hitherto, under illiterate princes, have been lost because there are few who would understand my works. So we're dealing with a strong oral culture here, public readings, and we learn a little bit about Gerald's perception of himself from the description. But this also takes us to our translation of his work and Trinity Manuscript 592. Gerald imagined translation into French, the courtly language of his day, but when his work was translated into the vernacular in late medieval Ireland, the vernaculars in use are English and Gaelic. But his reasoning that the vernacular translations would extend his audience and aid dissemination of his work into a wider sphere proved prophetic. This English language translation of the history appears to be extremely important in the transmission of his work in the later Middle Ages, and we can see it in use right up until the 16th century, when there was an explosion of retranslations of Gerald's work by various individuals seeking to support various ways of reading and using history. Now I mentioned that the topographia has five versions. The Expugnatio has two or three, depending on how you classify them. And it's this intermediate Latin recension, so the second version, which is slightly abbreviated, uh, which forms our translation. <coughs> We've only got two of this Latin recension uh, remaining, uh, British Library Harley Manuscript 177 and Cambridge Additional Manuscript 3392, both of which are late medieval copies of the Expugnatio and both of which are circulating in English Ireland in this period. We don't have the original Latin manuscript on which our translation is based, nor do we have the original English translation. So our vernacular corpus is comprised of copies of this vernacular work, which I'm going to call Conquest, to distinguish it from the Latin original work, the Expocnatio. So what do they look like? We have a number of extant manuscripts from the 15th to the 16th centuries. Um, Trinity Manuscript, um, 592 on the screen, um, then Bobby and Wallington, the 490, uh, which is in the possession at one point of Lord Chancellor William Jarrod, who was appointed uh, Lord Chancellor in 1576 uh, under Henry Sidney's um, Lord Deputyship uh, the second time. Uh, Lamb Palace Manuscript 598, which is a 15th century manuscript as well, uh, probably in the best shape of um, our manuscripts and possibly the best executed um, of them. 
Another two uh, copies from the 15th century. We know who owned these, uh, and they're circulating among the gentry class of English Ireland in the 15th century. British Additional Manuscript 40674 uh, was owned by the Darcy family of Platinum in County Westmeath. And then the Oxford Bodleian Vaud and Miscellaneous Manuscript 26, uh, 526 uh, was owned by the Preston family of Gormanstown and uh, County Meath as well. And this is a one chapter extract, and just what you see on screen is the entirety of, of that text. Um, just the chapter, Articulating the Rights of the English King to Ireland. We've also got 16th century uh, copies. The Lambeth Palace Manuscript 623, the Book of Oath. This is a massive manuscript. It's a decade-long project uh, that began in the 1570s by Christopher St. Lawrence, 7th Baron Hoth, in Hoth in County Dublin. Um, and then Trinity Manuscript uh, 593, which is a, a portion um, of this uh, text. National Library of Ireland, Manuscript uh, 1416, um, written by Richard Robinson on the 25th of February, 1575. Um, a Protestant scribe who makes some alterations to the references to the popes, etc. Um, but that's not connected to the Book of Popes, to the uh, general uh, medieval uh, conquest text. And the majority of the copies um, that we have display minor textual alterations, but uh, the later copies, particularly the Book of Popes, differ significantly in the transmission of the medieval translation, that is, the conquest. We've also got some Gaelic uh, manuscripts. Um, one of them is in Trinity. Um, one Trinity manuscript, 1298, 15th century manuscript, which may be owned by the minor Fitzgerald family of Allen. Uh, also, the uh, Fitzgerald Earls of Kildare, um, which important uh, magnates of the um, 15th century, 16th century, have a copy of the Irish language conquest. And we know this from their 16th century library list. So the manuscript doesn't appear to survive, but we know from the list that they had a, an Irish text, they appear to have had an English um, language conquest, and a Latin topographia, so they have quite a, a collection. Now this Gaelic version of the conquest appears to be translated from the English rather than the Latin version of the Expognatio, so it's probably being read by Gaelicised English in Ireland rather than Gaelic families. And then the uh, Bodleian Wallachian manuscript, which is a little bit later, um, which is on screen, 17th century uh, copy, including uh, the conquest and also medieval and modern poems in Gaelic. Um, and a little note on page six um, by Charles Fairfax, um, the antiquarian one-time owner of the manuscript, uh, talks about the foundation of Trinity College and lists the first ten provosts. So there's a connection to Trinity um, there. We don't know who originally translated the Expognatio into English, and generally we don't know who produced or funded or read these copies either. <coughs> but clearly they were considered important and useful as a means of transmitting the history of the English invasion and conquest of Ireland. So, closely look at Trinity Manuscript 592. Um, paper manuscript uh, contains one full work, uh, The Conquest, and a fragment of a work called The Governance of Princes, which was completed by James Young for James Butler, the fourth Earl of Ormond, in 1422. The copying of the governance text was abandoned after the uh, scribe completed one column in the final folio of this manuscript, so um, that's the one on the left. So folio 27, vector work 28, and numbers is different on that. Uh, possibly um, then being attached to the, the conquest afterwards. So the manuscript has early modern flyleaves, um, one of which is marble, so that's the pretty colour you can see um, at the side. So not medieval, and winding is uh, 18th, 19th century. From the dialect of English, uh, which the conquest is written in, we can tell that it was produced in Ireland, but beyond that it's impossible to localise further. The linguistic atlas of late medieval English, so the Bible for middle English dialects, uh, suggests that some of the conquest manuscripts may show a Waterford dialect um, of provenance. 
but it really is a guess. We don't have enough evidence to pin down English dialects in Ireland. And indeed, the linguistic atlas doesn't suggest a scribal dialect for Trinity uh, 592. It notes that the language changes considerably as the text proceeds. And this might be to do with who was writing it. We can see from the hands, so the handwriting, that there were three scribes responsible for producing the manuscript. And they're all writing in a mid to late 15th century Anglicanist style script with secondary features. Um, each scribe appears to be responsible for their own <coughs> rubrication, so marking with colour, uh, generating bread, um, and the style of rubrication changes with the scribe. You can see the difference um, on the capitals, which indicate the start of a chapter. And the style isn't consistent, it changes a couple of times through the manuscript. Um, slightly earlier photograph there, um, you can see uh, scribe A and B, just see the uh, same word, Macmurra, uh, represented in different um, slightly different ways, um, and then scribe uh, C on the, uh, on the right. Uh, and scribe C uh, starts on folio 12 recto and continues to the end of the manuscript, um, slightly neater um, than the other two. Um, uses quite a lot of uh, senders, so the line flourishes at the top of the letters in the first line of the folio. And at one point, the rubrication changes slightly, so suddenly green is used um, rather than red. Uh, and this is on 23 recto, which is the folio on screen. Um, so this is a chapter uh, 47, a very short chapter, which describes how Vivian the Papal Legate came to Dublin in 1177 and presided over council. So that's the entirety of the uh, short chapter. Um, I'm just going to read this section in gold. So there he showed openly the king's rights of England to Ireland at the Pope's grant and his confirmation and of mansing, so on threat of uh, excommunication, forbade learned and learned uh, that none so near so hardly was to come against the king's troop. So learned and ignorant couldn't uh, oppose this. There are a few other uses uh, of green from this point, but given that we've also got uh, red on this page, uh, we've been a deliberate effort to draw attention to this very short chapter. And at the end of the manuscript, uh, folio 27, recto, a uh, number of capitals are entirely missing, and uh, green paraphs and then a green capital appears, perhaps indicating that green is being used as a necessity when red is uh, unavailable. We've got some damage um, on the manuscript. A few pages had to be repaired. Um, four and five uh, are on screen. Uh, nine is badly damaged. Um, extensive repair to folios 26 and 27. And 27 is the, the last uh, chapter. And the damage to the last in the first chapter suggests that it may have been unbound for a long period of time. So it's similar in style to uh, many of the other medieval manuscripts of Corpus. <coughs> so the decoration script general appearance is similar. Um, TCD has few, fewer annotations and marginalia in it. Um, it's one uh, notable difference. There are no chapter numbers in the margin as found in other versions of this corpus of manuscripts. The exemplars, uh, so the manuscript Trinity was copied from, does not appear to have survived. It doesn't tell us much about who made it, who owned it, or who read it. Uh, but there are some marginal notes in the manuscript um, which tell a little bit about how uh, medieval and later readers encountered the work. Many of these are common across the corpus, so not specific to this manuscript. For instance, the note in the left margin, uh, nota that Irishmen in thoughts of kind, um, so thoughts of nature, appears alongside chapter 57 as a reading or a finding aid. This chapter presents the English king's rights to Ireland and concludes with a section which outlines that the people of Ireland, who had never been subject to anyone before, gave their allegiance to Henry II. They, by goodwill, gave him to King Henry and by oaths and hostages, and all uh, sicknesses or sureties, 
that himself liked and the Pope that thereafter him granted and confirmed the lordship of the land and accursed or opposed all him did at any time it there again come. The text then adds a warning, which is related to our side note. And then they, so the Gaelic people, through kind falseness, so the falseness of their nature and unstableness that in him is, little tell of dates, of oaths, and of mancing uh, to curses uh, or excommunication. Nonetheless, they were never, though no man had power, thereof assailed, they unbound. But man may bind himself with such thing, but not so lightly unbind. As the, the end of chapter 57. Um, just finishes on top of that little uh, red uh, M. So this is not the worst thing that Gerald says about the Gaelic people, but here his warning is crucial. He argues that they freely submitted themselves to the English king, and therefore, though by their very natures they try to wriggle out of it, uh, men may not unbind himself. If you give your word, you must stick to it. Now, but the other thing that's interesting about this chapter, and you can uh, just see here, um, is that the, fir after the first line after the initial red letter, uh, Master Gerald, so Gerald of Wales, may tell us no further of the conquest, but of the left where through the land of Clench was conquered, made the folk fully brought it home. Now there is an error uh, in this uh, sentence that appears to be across the corpus. Uh, Gerald says the land was not fully conquered, and um, with a drop to a word here, um, so it makes it slightly more positive. But nonetheless, um, it's one of the few instances in the translation when the translator himself intrudes on the narrative. He talks about Gerald in the third person. He's telling us that he's relaying the story. We don't have a typer for the work. We don't see it ascribed to Gerald at the start or at the end. But within the text on three occasions, we see the translator dropping the mask a little. And he does this again when he tells us who Gerald was and how he arrived in Ireland. But for the most part, the translator is happy to stay in the background. These are Gerald's words, and he's not trying to create a new work. And that's one thing which is quite remarkable about the translation. It's quite close to that in Expognatio. It's an abbreviation, certainly, but it doesn't drastically alter the source material. I mentioned earlier that the work includes sections of Topographia, Gerald's other work on Ireland. This is unique to the English language conquest. No extant Latin text does this. And this may be the work of a translator, and in keeping with the silent translating, these expanded cross-references are just inserted silently. Our first cross-reference uh, in chapter 15 um, offers a discussion of two miracles that took place in Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin. In the Latin Expedatio, we were told, look at the topographia to learn about these miracles. But the translator has done that for us, so he just silently inserts the appropriate passages, uh, which are here. At this point, um, chapter 17, book 1 of the Expognatio, uh, you'll note it's a different chapter in the, uh, the Conquest, the English translation. Uh, so in the year uh, 1117, MacMurrah, who hated the citizens of Dublin and his allies, the English, um, they're assaulting Dublin. Uh, fearing that the city will fall, citizens tried to flee, and the leaders do eventually flee, uh, taking with them many precious objects. And the text says that... Uh, oops. That day befell two miracles in the city, that one of the cross in the mother church of the Trinity, which the citizens would have delayed or taken uh, with them to the island of the sea, and for nothing may they might be wrenching or move it out of place. So the citizens uh, might be happy to protect the city, but the famous relic of Christchurch uh, refuses. And after the English victory, an English archer tries to make an offering to the cross, and you can see the uh, arrow pointing there at the red mark in the T, which is the first letter of this next miracle, so they've given a bit of a division. Second miracle, that other of a surgeon that had robbed the archbishop's palace, and thereafter come before the rod of the cross, and offered a penny, first and after some, and at every time the penny started again to him. He told him that God was not well acquaid, or well pleased of the robbery that he had to do, 
He turned him then and let take all that he numb and bare it again and went to the rod for the cross and his offering there abode. So the insertion of this passage, um, which you can see a, an image of here in a different Latin manuscript, well, um, manuscript uh, 13b8. Uh, this passage being inserted negates the need for further research on the part of the reader and indeed uses Gerald's own material to provide a more complete and accessible work in English. The cross remained a key relic of the cathedral. It was venerated by citizens. Agreements were conducted before it. It was claimed that it had spoken on at least two occasions. And this passage gives us a fascinating glimpse of a late medieval scribe at work, finding the source, inserting it, and then stepping back so we might miss it. We can see no trace of this on the manuscript. The humility of the medieval scribe or medieval translator is, um, is evident here. Of course, this wasn't Gerald's style. He, he was quite the opposite. But the moral religious messages of these passages may account for their inclusion. And it's a reminder that individuals must admit to their faults before they can be forgiven was as appropriate in the 15th century as it had been in the 12th. And these miracles take place after a raid by Macmurra, and the threat of the Macmurras of Leinster continued into the later Middle Ages, a reminder perhaps of the ongoing nature of the battle for English control in Ireland. This is probably one of my favourite passages from the translation. It's another expanded cross-reference um, from the Chitographia, and it tells the story of a wonder adventure uh, which takes place in a wood of myth, or mead, which um, <laughs> is quite as exciting as myth. Um, you can see uh, on screen uh, the note uh, drawing attention to the passage, Nota de Lupo. Um, and this particular passage is also represented in storyboard form in some of the Topographia manuscripts, which highlight an interest in this story, again from the Royal Manuscript. This passage is one of the most reworked by Gerald, detailing how a priest encounters a wolf, or a man, depending on the version, uh, requesting the sacraments. The version of this story in the English translation is a fairly accurate copy of the 4th or 5th recension of the Topographia passage, but there are changes. So you have one wolf, a female, and the boy accompanying the priest who finds the wolf is absent. In the Topographia, the priest administers all of the sacraments, and Gerald draws attention to the Eucharist and the Vatican, so for anointing the gravely ill, and in the conquest only confession is mentioned. So by that you get the idea of a dying creature who can be saved from barbarism by the English uh, religious uh, civilizing mission. In the English language version, confession suggests more of an ongoing struggle against the um, sins of the world and suggesting the potential of reform and salvation through religious instruction. And this is possibly also um, indicated on our uh, illustration. People's power to affect the outcome of significant events and the need for moral responsibility is further indicated when the priest asks the wolf what the future holds for the invaders. Which is not what you do if you come across a talking wolf. <laughs> uh, the female wolf explains that the arrival of the English was on account of the Irish nation's sins, and God's anger would allow the English to dominate as long as they maintained his commandments. The Latin indicates that sin and vice was responsible for God's anger against the Gaelic Irish, and Gerald makes the unfortunate Irish wolf launch into a warning tirade about the dangers of the invaders adopting such abominable traits from the Gaelic. However, this negativity towards the Irish just does not seem to be replicated in the translation. The Hibernian Middle English speech indicates that to maintain uh, superiority, the English uh, must uh, maintain pious moral behaviour without falling into sin, but the Gaelic people are not held up as an example of what not to emulate. Uh, you can just see here um, the same passage in British additional um, manuscript um, of the conquest, which also has uh, some reader notes in the margin um, showing another attention drawn to this passage that was of, of interest to readers. 
But in, in a minor point in a great deal of passage, but if the writer is keen to stress the need to remain civilised or English to a contemporary readership in Ireland, one would expect more to be made of this example of negative assimilation with the Gaelic Irish. Of course, this may not have been in the original consulted, but if it was, it may have been omitted because the late medieval English community was already being accused of such degeneration and adoption of less civilised practices. And assembled Englishmen may not have wanted to draw attention to this perceived uh, deviation. The suggestion that morality and God had a huge role to play in the conquest of the island and could still play a huge role in retention or otherwise uh, created challenge readers to engage in this new state of conquest by avoiding sin in order to protect and retain their hold on the colony. So on the folio opposite the Wolf Passage um, of this uh, Trinity manuscript, we get another um, scribal note in the margin, three scribal notes actually. Um, at the start, um, 57, a note draws attention to the first coming of King John into Ireland. And then there are two notes um, in both margins, one of them crossed out, note of the king, his title to Ireland. And the chapter goes on to offer the justification for English rule in Ireland, listing the rights that Gerald presents and reworks in both of his works on Ireland. So that the princes yield to the king voluntarily, um, and maybe Gaelic princes, the Pope, uh, special rights to islands, how Bellamy's son, King of Britain, won the land, how the Irish did homage to him and also to Arthur, how the Irish came from Bayon, which is now in Gascony, where the English kings are lords and therefore they should still be subject to them. Um, and also the uh, aforementioned threat of the Pope to uh, uh, excommunicate those who go against the king. And then the reminder that one could uh, freely bind oneself to something but couldn't unbind oneself. So it kind of leads, leads on nicely from the wolf's speech or the warning. So maintain higher high moral standards and retain control of Ireland, and here are the justifications for the existence of English presence in Ireland. Uh, Prince John is not the first royal uh, to visit Ireland. Um, earlier in the work, chapter 24, Gerald describes how uh, King Henry arrived in Waterford. Marginal note appears, and note of the primo adventu regis anglae hibernum. And the text itself presents the arrival as uh, fulfillment of prophecy. So he arrives in Waterford on St. Luke's Day with 500 knights and men and horses. And then was fulfilled a prophecy of Merlin that said, Out of the east shall come a fire burning, and shall Ireland all about forsway. And St. Mullin said thus, Out of the east shall come a strong thunder, and shall smite into the west, and all the strength of Ormond that then bring. So Gerald is an advisor to kings, and he's casting himself as a prophet uh, of the invasion of Ireland. This preface to the Topographia appears to allude to Merlin Sylvester by referring to himself as Sylvester, although he later changes this to Geraldus, so the Latin form of Gerald. Gerald suggested that he would produce a third book for the Expognatio, which would focus on Merlin's prophecies. This never materialised, but he does offer glimpses in the extant material how he saw these prophecies relating to Ireland. We can see this, for instance, in the description of the actions of John de Courcy, who is the conqueror of the northern part of Ireland. Of course, he's one of Gerald's pillars of the invasion. Um, so Robert Fitzstephen, Henry de Montmorency, Raymond de Gross, and de Courcy. And Gerald comments on de Courcy's action. Um, again, he lists how many knights, how many squires, footmen he has. And then he says, he went into Ulster, where no other Englishman in weapon before him was. Then was fulfilled a prophecy of Merlin that said, a white knight on a white horse bearing fowls in a shield, and a foremost essay, Ulster. And then Gerald explains that this John was a man, full white, and rode upon a white horse and bare a shield, uh, bowels are printed. There's an interesting uh, later note uh, on this um, page that I didn't mention, um, which also refers to the fated arrival of King Henry. For 
In the martyrologies, the king brought 400 great ships into Ireland and in a short time subdued the whole land, being governed by five kings, all which submitted to the king, except the king of Connacht, who kept himself in woods and marshes. This is not from Daryl's work. It's an extra reading, which a later reader feels augments the topic, uh, the king's stated arrival in Ireland, and thus he writes it down in the margin. We have some other clues left by readers, which let us catch a glimpse of people interacting with the history. For instance, this double-page uh, spread, um, Folio, folio 8 verso 9 recto. Uh, it's interesting that the scribal drawing on the margin, um, which is unfortunately torn, um, but it appears alongside a chapter of the martyrdom of uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett, in 1170, a considerable stain on Henry's reputation. And following the trend in the corpus is likely to represent a symbol drawing attention to that passage. Maybe just can make out at the bottom of a palm from Thomas at the end of the, the note. On the opposite folio, uh, you can see another note uh, in the left margin, which reads the Archbishop of Canterbury called Thomas Beckett, 1171. This is in a later hand, and you can uh, hopefully tell from the handwriting. Now, I mentioned that the translation sticks quite closely to the Latin expugnatio, but this section is actually the exception, or the one exception. The story of Beckett's martyrdom is in Gerald's history. That's not new, but the translation inserts a longer section, slightly more descriptive, slightly more emotive account of events. It may be an elaboration by the translator of his particular devotion to Beckett, or perhaps he's copying another written account. It's not quite clear. There's no reference to any other source indicated. The most obvious deviations from the Latin source lie in this section and the representation of King Henry II. Now, Henry's on the receiving end of a character facelift. Uh, the translator's focus on sin and piety comes to the fore in the depiction of the English king as an exemplary, pious Christian, an important cog in God's plan for the colony in Ireland. So you can see from the manuscript different ways of people, the translator, the scribes, later readers, have engaged with Gerald's work, added to it, expanded it, changed it. So I've just seen one instance of religious interest in this manuscript, but there are others. Folio 6 verso is a little drawing in the lower margin, um, reading in the uh, little stepped podium, What Mercy Lady Help. This might be related to the text, um, which talks first of all about the king sending uh, Raymond Legros into Ireland and then describes a great battle at Waterford. And then there's a verbal debate about what to do with the prisoners, the Irish prisoners that have been, been captured uh, between Herbie and Raymond. And Herbie uh, figures uh, they need to kill them to follow, up, follow through on the task they've started. And Raymond wants more compassion, more mercy. Um, and eventually uh, killing them uh, wins out and they are uh, laden him to the cliff and up the sea and put him down and drowned him. So perhaps this uh, note is trying to uh, question the decision there. There's another um, strange illustration on folio 9 verso, rather peculiar drawing in the margin. It's being claimed that this is a church, um, which it might be. Um, the chapter uh, presents the martyrdom of Beckett, so perhaps it's a rendering of uh, Canterbury Cathedral where Beckett is killed. And it may perhaps be a slightly better, it may be copying a slightly better version of whatever this is. Um, but none of our extant manuscripts uh, present anything similar, so we're not really quite sure what, uh, what it is. But you can see a little bit of detail on it, um, that a portion of the text is underlined by a later reader. So Dermot McMurray died. And in the margin, you can just see that uh, somebody has added this, um, this portion, uh, sort of drawing attention to this, uh, this death. I should point out that this short epitaph for Mahmura in the text is presented at the end of this Beckett passage, which is not normally where it appears um, in the Latin expugnatio. So that's one of the things that's moved a little bit. 
halfway down to folio 13 recto, um, so the page on the left, uh, we see the start of chapter 38, which opens explaining how the prelates of the church uh, came together in 1172 to hold the Council of Cashel to reform. Um, so this chapter then presents the statutes of that council. You can see on the side of the folio, um, there's a little bit of um, scribal narratio uh, and also a later hand establishment of the origin of the clergy and matters of religion. The medieval scribes are doing their best to draw attention to this section. Each of the statutes is marked with a red paraffin and numbered, and you can just make out a little box um, in the margin uh, right beside one of the statutes. You can see here, this is the fourth statute. Trust me. Um, this is the text of it. Um, and a later reader has added a note in the margin alongside this, the privileges and freedom given to the church and lands thereof. So you can see that the history is being used as a source book, or being read as that. Uh, we get some idea as well of the layers of interaction with the text of various readers uh, through the ages. Now, it's not the best executed of manuscripts. There are plenty of errors and mistakes evident. Um, most striking is perhaps this one, uh, which looks fine until you see the second page. Um, so here you see an entire passage being crossed out at the top of folio uh, 16 recto. And what's happened is that the scribe has copied the same passage of 12 lines twice by accident. Uh, perhaps this is a break in the process of copying, or perhaps we should have taken a break. Um, but this crossing out isn't the prettiest way to correct the mistake, but it's one way of doing it. Uh, what it does offer uh, is it gives a glimpse of the passage. So you can compare uh, the passages and see that they're not exactly the same. Certain words are abbreviated um, in one copying and not in others. And the decoration, although similar, it's likely followed an exemplar. It's not identical. So it might have looked the best, but it's interesting to see how the same passage changes within the same manuscript. So once the manuscript is uh, accessible, you can uh, check up for yourselves. There is another um, error in the manuscript, equally instructive as to the level of attention given to the copying process. Folio 26 recto has sections crossed out of the lower half of the manuscript, and we've lost some of the text, and this portion is not rewritten elsewhere. But if we flip the folio over, digitally, we can see that the other side, folio 26 verso, um, obviously the page is still torn, um, but we don't have any loss of text here. So the scribe is written around the torn page. So this means that the damage probably took place while the folio was being written. So again, this allows us a glimpse of the process of creating the manuscript, perhaps suggesting rather careless scribes and fragile material. It's not the prettiest of manuscripts, but it is interesting. So who is making this manuscript or these manuscripts? We don't know is the short answer, but there may be a few hints. An image on folio uh, six verso, um, which we've seen earlier, Maybe um, a signum mansum, so the signature of the medieval professional scribe, like these examples from medieval Dublin, 15th century. Um, possibly it's a symbol that's copied from the scribe who doesn't quite know what they're doing, maybe. Um, so we might be looking for a professional scribe. And by that I mean someone working in the English administration in Ireland who may have been responsible for at least some of the conquest manuscripts, if not the translation himself. And this would fit with the type of individual creating manuscripts in this period. But there's no need to sign a literary manuscript like this, so this may not be uh, what it is, and there's just no name either to attach to it. But there is one short tantalising phrase added to the final folio, um, folio 31 verso, of the conquest in the Lambeth Palace manuscript 598. Um, so this spidery, non-scribal hand writes secundum Thomas Bray, according to Thomas Bray, um, appearing alongside a Latin phrase um, that you can see. And it's not clear what exactly this, when exactly this note was written, but it appears to be relatively <coughs> contemporaneous. 
1670th century antiquarian George Carew, uh, one-time owner of this manuscript, interpreted this to mean that Bray was responsible for the translation of the Expoxmatio. Many modern scholars followed Carew's lead. The 19th century edition of the Lambeth manuscript was attributed to Bray by its editors, um, Brewer and Bullen. And the great scholar, uh, Governor Henry Orphan, for instance, referred to the Hibernian Middle English translation of the Expoxmatio as Bray's Conquest of Ireland. It's unclear whether the note relates to the individual responsible for creating this manuscript or the translation. Um, and it may be that this is not our um, uh, scribe, but maybe the translator. But we don't know much about Thomas Bray. He's not credited among James Ware's 16th century list of writers of Ireland, and his name does not seem to crop up in other literary sources. Thomas Bray does crop up in the records in the early 15th century in, in Dublin, um, but he still remains a shadowy figure. Now, the Lambeth Palace manuscript 598 uh, Conquest was later attached to a contemporary companion text, an impressive illuminated version of Johann Cuthon's Deposition of Richard II, which details King Richard II's visit to Ireland in 1394, thus providing a multilingual account of the uh, military expedition of the English forces to Ireland from the 12th to 14th centuries. And in their current form, these manuscripts can be understood as a type of historical anthology, but they're not simply historical uh, miscellanies. They contain separate but connected texts which link the history of the colony's foundation to a wider Ireland-based history, or in the case of Lambeth Palace uh, Manuscript 598, late 15th century English history in Ireland. Most of the copies of the conquest may originally have been conceived as a single unit, but they're later bound as thematically connected historical book. The 16th century Book of Hope is slightly different, and the most ambitious uh, in this regard with regard to a you know, wide-ranging perspective on the history of Ireland. The endurance of the Expognatio can partly be explained by necessity. It was the history of the invasion. The only other comparable source for this period in Irish history is a fragment of the Hiberna-French poem, The Song of German to the Earl, and the brief uh, references uh, entries in the Irish annals. The acceptance and continued dissemination of this historical narrative in 15th century Ireland attests to the importance of the past and the need to maintain or project an English identity in a contested sphere. The Hibernian Middle English Conquest provided an English history in the language of England. We're unsure precisely who was responsible for the translation, patron or scribe, and we have to guess at its approximate date as well as provenance. We do know, however, that it was important to the English community in Ireland. It presented a foundational story which could articulate the importance of the settled English community as well as simultaneously stressing the importance, power and rights of the English king and the corresponding responsibilities and duty which he owed to his dominion. It contributed to contemporary debates, and its message became a central facet of the presentation of arguments articulating late medieval concerns and historical perspectives in Ireland. Concerns regarding the stability of the late medieval colony and the desire to repel the Irish enemy motivated numerous requests for further military engagements by the Crown on the island from the late 14th century, as I partly realised with the arrival of Richard in 1394. The work continued to be valuable throughout the late Middle Ages, and the English vernacular translation greatly aided the dissemination and use of Gerald's 12th century history well into the early modern period. It is a dynamic afterlife. For instance, it's a source for the 1569 Attainder of Jane O'Neill, the earliest use of Gerald's material in early modern politics. It's part of the historical preamble, which uses two medieval sources, and possibly Wallington manuscript B490, which I mentioned earlier. This attainder, drafted by Sir Henry Sidney during one of his periods as Lord Lieutenant, was to underpin the Tudor plantation of Ulster, which changed the face of Gaelic Ulster, so it's a hugely significant document. And we can see across the corpus different uses for Gerald's history. Rawlinson before 90 seems to have possibly been a political handbook for the highest office holders of the English administration in Ireland. The 16th century Book of Hope uses the conquest as both a family history and a political tool. 
And in the Trinity manuscript 592, we perhaps see the conquest as a religious history or authority. And in National Library of Ireland manuscript 1416, we see the conquest emerge as a religious Protestant history. These are different stories told using the same raw material. Different emphasis are placed on different parts of the narrative by scribes, patrons and readers to facilitate very different uses of the past. The edition of the conquest published by the Early English Text Society in 1896, edited by Frederick J. Furnival, was dedicated to the Right Honourable William Edward Gladstone, the then 87-year-old former four-time Prime Minister of Britain, and all who worked for justice to Ireland. This dedication perhaps recalled Gladstone's 1868 uh, general election slogan, Justice for Ireland, and his promise on becoming Prime Minister that my mission is to pacify Ireland. Although Furnival's contemporary politicians faced a very different Ireland to that of the conquest's late medieval readers, both the contents of the history and the dedication to Gladstone were emblematic of how Ireland remained a contested sphere and frustrated and vexed centuries of English politicians past and present. <laughs> I want to finish with what's possibly the most uh, recent practical use of Gerald's work. Ireland British play uh, Wales in rugby in Six Nations competition <laughs> on, on the 8th of February 2014. At this point, one of our players, uh, Gordon Darcy, was, if you recall, uh, sporting a particularly Charles Stuart Parnell-style beard, uh, much <laughs> like the individuals uh, you see um, barbarously killing each other um, from Gerald Wells' manuscript. <laughs> a few days before the match, uh, Frank McNally in an Irishman's diary in the Irish Times suggested that the Ireland dressing room should be plastered with extracts from Gerald Wells' work. Uh, things like this, Jen. This people, then, is truly barbarous, being not only barbarous in their dress, but suffering their hair and beards to grow enormously. <laughs> but habits are formed from mutual intercourse, and as these people inhabit a country so remote from the rest of the world, and are thus excluded from civilised nations, they learn nothing and practice nothing, but the barbarism in which they are born and bred, which sticks to them like a second nature. Gerald also alluded to a remarkable illuminated manuscript, which uh, may be the Book of Kells, which he described as work not of men, but of angels. McNally concluded the article suggesting that beauty sometimes triumphs over prejudice and suggested someone should pin up photocopies of the Book of Kells <laughs> in the visiting Welsh team's dressing room. <laughs> I'd like to think that somebody followed his advice. Ireland trounced Wales 26-3. <laughs> and we went on to win the Six Nations Championship. I won't remind you of the one match that we lost in that tournament uh, by three points. So perhaps there is value in reusing Gerald's bias vitriol, but it serves as a warning of the dangers of allowing prejudice, ego, and unfettered rhetoric to dominate our discourse. Gerald subscribed to a Ciceronian view of history, describing it in the introduction to the Expognatio as the warrant for antiquity, the eyewitness of times past, the shining light of truth, the lifeline of our memory, life's instructor, the messenger of former times to us. We shouldn't agree with everything Gerald posits in his extremely biased histories, but perhaps we could come up with some suitable extracts from the Expognatio or the Typographia for any ongoing negotiations which serve as reminders of the dangers of allowing rhetoric, misinformation and fully veiled self-interest to shape political, social and economic policy and once again complicate the Irish question. So if you thought history written in the 12th century was obsolete, think again. <laughs>